in-depth journalism is more important than ever in a complicated, chaotic time. That's why we listen to NPR's Throughline. This is a podcast that appeals to us on so many levels. As history buffs, we love their historical contextualization of important ongoing issues. As storytellers, we love the engaging way they approach and often humanize complicated tales. As news consumers who want to stay informed, we love the way they give the story behind the big stories of the day. We try to take a similar approach on the murder sheet, and we feel confident that our listeners would enjoy giving NPR's Throughline a try. We've been going through their entire backlog recently, listening to them as we drive to source meetings. One favorite of mine was their episode about Andrew Johnson's impeachment. Throughline's coverage didn't disappoint, delving in depth into one of history's worst U.S. presidents. They also did an episode which is rather pertinent to our work, and that was the one they did about the proliferation of conspiracy theories and how they've always been part of America's DNA. That's something I think about quite a lot, given the creep of misinformation and manipulation in online true crime spaces. NPR's Throughline is a source we trust. They're all about nuance and depth and unpacking the messiness behind outwardly simple stories. Go back in time. Learn something new. Emerge more knowledgeable about today's headlines. Listen now to Throughline from NPR, wherever you get your podcasts. Have you heard you can listen to your favorite gripping investigations ad-free? Good news. With Amazon Music, you have access to the largest catalog of ad-free top podcasts included with your Prime membership. To start listening, download the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash ad-free true crime. That's amazon.com slash ad-free true crime to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. Ophthalmologist Dr. Strauss has seen firsthand how the metaverse is helping surgeons practice the procedures to treat cataracts. Cataracts are the primary cause of avoidable blindness. He works with a virtual reality training platform developed by Fundamental VR and Orbis International to help surgeons develop the muscle memory they need. The result? More confident, capable surgeons. And even more importantly, patients who can see. Explore more stories like Dr. Strauss's at meta.com slash metaverse impact. Content warning, this episode contains discussion of the murder of two girls along with violence and other murders. So once in a while, we find it helpful to do a bit of a Q&A episode, kind of go through a few listener questions. We cover a lot of different things on the show, a lot of different cases, complicated cases. So it can be helpful to recalibrate, get some of your questions answered. And also so we can better understand what people are interested in or what we could better clarify on the show. So we, uh, put out a question and answer form and we were really gratified. A bunch of people responded. And so we'll try to get through some of those questions. And we also want to say we appreciate everyone who did send us questions. You know, thanks for your interest and thanks for having an inquisitive mind. <laughs> My name is Anya Kane. I'm a journalist. And I'm Kevin Greenlee. I'm an attorney. We first connected while looking into the Burger Chef murders, an Indiana cold case. Together, we built a spreadsheet documenting hundreds of cases of restaurant-related homicides. That original spreadsheet gave way to our podcast, The Murder Sheet. Now we maintain that same research-centric, investigative approach as we look into all sorts of homicides, including unsolved cases, historical crimes, and, of course, restaurant murders. 
We don't just chat about the headlines. Our podcast is a platform for our journalism. The Murder Sheet focuses on investigative reporting, thoughtful analysis, thorough research, and in-depth interviews. We're the Murder Sheet, and this is... February 2023, Questions and Answers. All right, so we'll go through our sheet. Everything comes back to spreadsheets for us, doesn't it, Kevin? It really does. <laughs> it really does. So this is a question from an anonymous listener, and it's about the Delphi case. Does the prosecution have a deadline of when the discovery needed is needed to be handed over to the defense? Thanks. Okay, great question. A lot of people have been asking about this because the continuance that the defense just filed in the Delphi case basically saying, we need more time with this discovery. Basically, in a situation like this, there's not so much that there is a specific deadline as it is important that the prosecutor be moving forward with it in a timely manner and not be delaying with it. Keep in mind the discovery in this case is mammoth. We've all heard stories about thousands and thousands of tips And all of those tips were investigated. And I'm sure we can only begin to imagine the number of interviews that were done and the number of uh, tests and stuff that were done. So this is not something that you can just like push a button, send, and it's transmitted to the defense. It takes some time to make sure you get it all done. And as long as... The prosecution is not delaying and is moving forward in good faith. I think that is acceptable. And I believe, uh, correct me if I'm wrong, Anya, but I believe in the latest filing, the defense indicated that they expected to have all of the discovery from the prosecution, uh, I think, by like within seven days. That's my understanding. So, uh, you know, I think some people who are more partial to the defense are like, why is the prosecution delaying? Maybe some people partial to the prosecution or like, you know, is the defense just asking for too much? And and some people who are in the middle are just kind of confused about how does this process work? Why is it taking so long? And that's all understandable. But I, I really do think that Judge Gull is going to expect both sides to, you know, be following the rules and be communicating with one another. So I think this is just the natural byproduct of there being so much information on this case that needs to be passed on from the prosecution to the defense. Obviously, if we hear different, then we'll be very interested in reporting that. I just am trying to give some clarity on, like, I don't think anything's going wrong here. I just think it's, like, five years of a very robust investigation with multiple suspects and lots of tips. So things will things will probably happen slower as a result of that. And obviously, 
we think the continuance will be granted. By the time you listen to this episode, it may have been granted. And that's the continuance. Basically, they're asking for the trial date to be delayed, and they're asking for the bond hearing to be moved back. So great question. Thanks for that. We have two questions, one from an anonymous listener and another from Chelsea. Hi, Chelsea. They both kind of touch upon similar things. One is, do you think Richard Allen was the only one involved in the girl's murder? I wonder because he looks really unfit to be able to overpower the girls. Thank you. And then Chelsea's is like a two-parter. Part one, do you think there are other actors involved in Delphi as Nick McClellan described in court? And then part two of Chelsea's question is, can Nick McClellan get in trouble for stating in court there may have been other actors if he can't produce them? Or solid evidence that they exist seems disingenuous and like he was possibly presenting false info to the court. All right. These are great questions. Um, uh, it's a compl- long, complicated answer, I think. Uh, I want to state first up, Rick Allen, Richard Allen has not been convicted yet. So I don't feel like we're in a position as journalists to say, yes, he's definitely guilty or, you know, he's not guilty. I feel like we we're in the wait and see mode with everybody else. What's the evidence against him? And then I think we're, you know, I, I think we can, in the interest of fairness, we don't want to necessarily come down very hard either way at this point. I think we want to be open-minded. That is to say, we will tell you when we think, like, this is good, solid evidence versus we have questions about this evidence. So a lot of the opinions we've sta- shared in the show more fall into the lines of, like, what is the case against him, you know, objectively panning out to be. With what Anya said is a very important caveat, I'd like to speak hypothetically and certainly say that in our uh, experience, there are numerous instances out there where a lone actor is able to commit a crime that you think would require more than one person to do. And there are numerous reasons for that. For one thing, if a person is holding a gun that can be very scary and intimidating. And you're intimidating two young girls in the woods with a gun, possibly. I don't really care how tall you are. I mean, and I, I don't feel we have enough information on Rick Allen as a person to really draw any conclusions about his strength or his health levels. Because when you see him in the courtroom, he looks very small. But um, I don't... If, if, the, if the court... The defense presents evidence saying, well, a much taller man would have had to inflict these wounds. Then we can go with that. But based on like short people can do crimes, too, um, and can overpower people with guns or coercion. It doesn't have to be a physical fight. We know from the Ron Logan probable cause affidavit for the search warrant. In his case, they FBI agents mentioned that the girls did not fight back in the crime, you know, physically. And so that or that there was no indications that they fought back. I should say that. Um, So that tells us that the killer didn't necessarily need to overpower anyone physically. Fear is a very intense emotion when you're in a fearful, awful situation and you're concerned about your own life and the life of your best friend. Then, I mean, that's going to maybe prompt people to be compliant and we just don't know enough. So I, I think making any conclusions because he's not like a big guy. I mean, BTK didn't look like a particularly intimidating person and he got away with a lot alone. It's it's just about using a fear and coercion to control people. You don't necessarily have to 
fight them or overpower them in a physical manner, I guess. But that being said, we're open-minded. Again, if, if people came to us and told us that Alan was, you know, very physically weak or had some health issues that would make him difficult, you know, people have also commented, well, the bodies were staged afterwards. So what does that mean? Could he have moved the bodies around? We don't know the extent of that. We don't know what that means. It, it, it's very vague language in the PCA for Ron Logan. And um, that would, we don't, that could mean moved meters or it could mean, you know, just a, just a kind of a different positioning. It, it, it's just, it's just very unclear. So I don't think we can draw any conclusions at this time. I'll tell you, sometimes people who look kind of physically weak and unassuming turn out to be actually very in pretty good shape. And, you know, Kevin mentioned this in an interview we did recently with the nice folks at the Drunk Turkey channel. They asked him kind of a similar question, and he noted, you know, Rick Allen worked retail. You know, if you're unloading pallets, unloading trucks, standing on your feet all day, moving stuff around, you know, you, you, you do need to have a level of physicality for that. So... Of course, he was a manager, but we heard stories about him doing things like unloading trucks. So I, I, I kind of feel like we don't know enough information to draw conclusions. Uh, and the second part of the question, of course, is can Nick McClellan get in trouble for saying other people were involved if other people were not involved? If he can't produce that proof. I think the, the most likely trouble that would cause for him is that during a, a trial, the defense can bring that up and say, they said they'd be bringing other people. Where are those other people? Maybe those other people are the guilty ones and our client is innocent. I think that is something that uh, the defense could use as a cudgel against him. Yeah, I mean, but I think the lesson in criminal defense is you can kind of use anything as a cudgel. You know, it, it's, I don't see how that really hurts him the jury is going to be instructed focus on rick allen whether you think he's guilty or not i think it would be helpful for the prosecution to have a narrative of the crime of like here's what we think happened because i think that's easier for a jury to understand than kind of fill in the gaps <laughs> and so I, I don't think it's necessarily a devastating situation if they don't get anybody else but i think there's going to have to be some sort of narrative through line of what they think happened to Libby and Abby, because I just think that a jury will need to be able to follow that along to kind of come to a conclusion either way. Okay, so we got some questions about a prior report that we did that we'll link to in our show notes. I'll read both of them. One is, do you believe the information you shared about Keg and Klein waiting in a vehicle for someone while murders were occurring, or do you now believe the information or source was wrong? Or was he sitting in a driveway at his cousin's house or a country club road waiting? That was from an anonymous listener. And then we got an even more detailed question from Millie. At about 1545 in the Murder Sheets episode number 125, September updates from September 22nd, 2022. Thank you for doing this, by the way, because now I can easily link to this. You guys talked about Kagan Klein's claim that he was parked in a red Jeep waiting while someone else killed the girls. What's the status of that information? That it has it been verified or refuted? If it's still a possibility, then do you think he was waiting for Richard Allen, perhaps to take the abducted girl somewhere? Could Kagan have been parked at the cemetery, but as Richard Allen was making the girls walk in that direction, something went wrong and uh, Allen killed the girls, then went to get Kagan, but Kagan panicked and drove off, leaving bloody and muddy Richard to walk back to his car at the CPS building. 
Yeah, very interesting questions, very good questions. As Millie noted, and I appreciate this, it, it, we said in our episode that that's a story Keg and Klein gave to police. And I think we noted in the episode pretty extensively that, you know, that should be taken with a huge grain of salt because Keg and Klein has lied in the past. And just because somebody claims something doesn't make it true. It, it's a situation where it's notable to us that this is a story that he claimed to police and brought to them, but it doesn't make it correct, as we noted in that episode. So as for whether it's been borne out, we have no idea. We didn't know back then. It sounded interesting, but it certainly sounded like something that would need to be extensively verified and corroborated and by police. I, I would assume that if that story had been verified by police, then whoever he told them he was waiting for, there would be charges filed against them. And that hasn't happened. And also, if that person was Richard Allen, I would have expected that to be mentioned in the probable cause, and it wasn't. So those things make me strongly suspect that that story has not been confirmed by police. Yeah. Makes you wonder, why is Kagan claiming that? Is he just telling police what he thinks they want to hear? Is is, is this some... I, I don't know. But I think we need like a psychiatrist on here to discuss why he might claim that. So I guess like many things in this case, it's an interesting thing that, you know, is very much then hard to do anything with afterwards because it's just kind of unconfirmed as to the truth of what. I mean, again, we know for a fact that he told this to police. That is that is that is confirmed. That is true. That is locked down. So the just the idea that he the source was not correct and our report is not correct because what we reported was that he told it to police. But again, that does not mean that the story is true. We don't know yet. Mysteries are at the heart of everything we do here on the murder sheet. But sometimes it's more fun to dive into a fictional caper. That's why we love the free to download hidden object game, June's Journey. This game is our daily escape from waiting around in line, getting stuck on hold, and just general doldrums. It is great to be able to just knock out a few levels here and there. You'll get to discover your inner sleuth and sharpen your observational skills by finding clues hidden in each level. Plus, it's like dropping straight into your own cozy mystery novel. You play as June Parker, an amateur detective with a nose for trouble. You get to tackle all kinds of bizarre crimes across a series of elegant and memorable locales. Also, you have a side hustle decorating your own island estate. I love that. I bought a swan pond. She really did. Download this game for a built-in work break. It's a great mental health boost that makes you feel accomplished before you get back to tackling whatever task you have at hand. And remember, when you support our advertisers, you're supporting our show. June needs your help, detective. Download June's Journey for free today on iOS and Android. Professional welder Shayna Ford used VR training developed by ForgeFX to hone her skills as a welder. The more time that you spend practicing it, that's what separates a good welder from a great welder. VR training can help students like Shayna repeatedly practice specific skills. Virtual reality definitely helps because the more muscle memory that you have, the smoother your weld is. Explore more stories like Shayna's at meta.com slash metaverse impact.
Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like building grid-scale solar energy in Ohio and producing gas with fewer operational emissions in Texas. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Uh, then we have another uh, question from an anonymous listener. And I'm not going to read it word for word for reasons that will become clear. But this listener references our earlier episode on the so-called Muddy Bloody Witness, which we'll also link to in our show notes, and wants to know if we've heard that person has been identified. Oh, yes. <laughs> and uh, th- this, this person mentions uh, a name and some background information. And if you follow the online communities that have grown up around this case... They have been spreading some information lately that one particular person is the so-called muddy and bloody witness. They've put the picture of this woman online. They've put what they purport to be an accurate recital of her criminal history online. And they uh, strongly suggest that perhaps she may have provided this information in order to get some sort of deal. So this is a real person, and she was charged with a very serious crime. We're not going to say more than that, because the more information you give, the easier it is to identify the person. When we saw this... We actually chatted with other creators who were interested in in the lead and had shared things about it, and we kind of talked with a number of different people we, we took it seriously. We really and we really appreciated those creators talking with us. They'd all heard about it, you know, kind of were were it was kind of it had a lot of people a buzz in the Delphi groups and understandably because because the story is shocking if true. And when we dug deeper into it, it seemed to be coming from what we can tell, the source seems to be Reddit. And, you know, it's possible for there to be good information yeah. on Reddit. Once in a there's, blue moon. Th- there's a lot of smart people on Reddit. Uh, but what it boils down to is if you read something, try to figure out what the source is, where the person sharing the information got that information. Obviously, we use anonymous sources and we can't always give you the names, but we try to give you some sort of indication. Like, oh, this may have been a, a, a local, or this may have been someone involved in an investigation, or whatever. Uh, what we saw was, uh, the, the information we saw, there was no source even hinted at. This information was just asserted. Asserted as truth from the get-go. That's a red flag, frankly. And we can confirm now that this information is simply not true. Yes. This person who has had their face spread all over the internet is not the witness. No. And so hopefully we can respect this person's privacy. I think it's important to try to figure out whether or not a person is credible, potential witnesses, but let's not 
identify witnesses who have not been mentioned publicly in the PCA, because that sort of thing invites people to hound and harass witnesses. And generally speaking, it's good for cases in general for people to feel like I can come forward and be a witness and not have my name and picture spread all over the internet and my criminal history on the internet. You want to make people feel safe to come forward. And and if people are doing this, um, understandably, some people believe that Rick Allen is innocent. Okay. And they're, and they may be kind of like, well, I need to speak on this and, and kind of throw dirt on this witness because then it defends Allen. And, you know, Certainly you can have that perspective, but the defense attorneys will have access to all the witnesses in this case, and they will be able to formulate defenses. And if they feel a witness is not credible, they will have that opportunity to come out and say that in court and say, oh, look, you made a deal with the police. Is that related? And and the jury will have that information. So I don't feel like this is necessary. And obviously in this case, it's not true, but... It's not as if Allen will not be defended. He has very capable attorneys. They will have all this information and will be able to to do it. But I just think it's unfortunate if someone who's not related to the case gets sucked into this because, you know, it can be pretty messy. And I think we should all just kind of, as Kevin said, Reddit can have some good information. It can have some really interesting theories. And I, I'm not saying it's not useful for anything, but I am saying that it's very easy for an anonymous person who essentially has no public skin in the game and no accountability to get out and just start asserting things as facts. Even in a well-moderated sub, it's very hard to root that out at times. And when people are basically just doing that um, and putting out misinformation, it kind of just wastes everybody. It wastes everybody's time. It wastes everybody's time. It gets everybody talking about something that's utterly meaningless. And I, I guess I just don't really see what the value add of that is. And so it's always really important to ask, where is this coming from? And what what is the provenance of this information? And things that tend to be credible tend to <laughs> make their way into the mainstream media, to be blunt, and get reported on by journalists. And things that are internet rumors and conjecture tend to not because they're not confirmed because they're not true. And it's not about disagreeing with people's theories or whatnot. It's about method. It's about procedure and how you go about collecting and and reporting information. And when you have the benefit of being some anonymous person on, on some subreddit, you know, you can kind of get away with a lot more because it's not because of the nature of, of how you're putting that out there. So we also have two somewhat similar questions from Lydia, as well as Sperry Lauro slash Laurel in Indy. So these are kind of related, and I wanted to read them together as a result. Lydia asks, how much legal culpability is there in any catfishing activity related to Delphi? So for example... As the creator of the Anthony Schatz profile, let's say Kagan shared that account with a person who ends up using it to meet with and kill the girls. Is that a but for X, Y wouldn't have happened level of participation that qualifies for felony murder in Indiana? Is there precedent? That's a great question from Lydia. Thank you for asking it. I'll do my non-lawyer okay. answer first and then Kevin can swoop in and correct me. <laughs> Basically, I think it would depend on 
well, the number one thing it depends on is what is there evidence for? Is there evidence that Kagan Klein actually did communicate with other people about, you know, his interactions with the girls or whatnot? And that's a big if. We don't know. We don't know if he did, and we also don't know if there's any evidence for it. So that, I mean, if the, if the evidence has been destroyed or it didn't happen, then obviously this goes out the window. If there is evidence for it, then I think it kind of depends on was it could it be characterized as during the commission of another felony? Because if if it's in if 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 that action is going towards committing another felony, then that could apply for felony murder. Yes. But if it's not, or if it happened in in some way that could be explained as as not being related to the commission of a felony, then possibly not. So without knowing more information about like what happened and what they have evidence for, it's hard to say. But hypothetically, your if not for X, Y scenario could go towards a felony murder charge. If, say, you know, the Anthony Schatz profile was communicating with somebody, you know, and the intent was to commit a sexual assault, you know. It doesn't have to be an intended murder by everybody. If they if they if they know it's going to really result in a kidnapping or a sexual assault, then that would be enough for it to lead to a murder charge. And another question: So, Sperry Lauro slash Laurel in Indy asked, in light of the three hundred eighty eight million payout to the three hundred Larry Nasser victims, one was Kagan Klein monitored online or offline by law enforcement between two thousand seventeen and his arrest in twenty twenty. Two, who is liable for damages in, for additional child sexual assault victims accrued by Klein between those dates? Three, who is liable if Klein accrued more victims after his arrest um, before he was in custody? Okay, great questions. And certainly um, the Larry Nasser case is a, is a really heinous example of where law enforcement dropped the ball on a situation um, and just behaved in kind of an astoundingly bad way in, in reaction to some of the accusations against uh, Larry Nasser. We don't know what the reason, I think, for the delay in the arrest between, you know, Klein coming on the raider, his house is raided in February 2017, shortly after the murders, and then he gets arrested in August 2020. Uh, obviously, I mean, I, I guess I just don't feel we can answer this because we don't have that information Obviously, if it turns out that there was some corrupt bargain to keep him out of jail and he kept committing crimes, that's going to raise some serious red flags as for liability. I don't I don't know that that happened, though. Yeah, we haven't seen any evidence of malfeasance on the part of law enforcement uh, that would rise to the level of incurring civil liability, in my judgment. Now, I... I mean, it's. I wanted to read this because I feel it's a really fair and good question, but I feel like it's it's just something that if there's something there, then yeah, that would be pretty could be pretty significant. But at the same time, if there's a more boring answer and it's not through negligence, but through you know, not all the evidence was was had at the time of the initial raid, or it took a while to process things or there could be other explanations that could possibly partially explain a delay. Or as this question alludes to, if there was some sort of monitoring going on that could also mitigate things. But I I also don't know. I don't know that there was monitor going on. I don't think we've heard that. I mean, that doesn't mean we don't hear everything. You know, sometimes people think we just 
you know, people will be like, can you get this information? And it's like, I don't know. Like, we'll try, but we can't get everything necessarily. People, if people don't want to tell you stuff, then they won't. But I don't know about the monitoring. Is that something you've heard about, Kevin? I've not heard anything about monitoring. That would be a pretty uh, substantial effort by law enforcement to try to monitor a person for uh, a number of years like that. Yeah, and what would be the gain? And people said, well, the investigation into the child sexual abuse materials rang, but that doesn't really make a lot of sense because you could just arrest him and then make a plea deal where he, you know, dimes on other people in the ring. It's really confusing. I, I this, That's one of the elements of this case that I'm most confused by. What the heck is with that timeline? What happened? Uh, the whole thing's very concerning. So another question we got um, was from SP74, and that uh, is basically, read the Delphi case. What is your sense as to why we haven't yet seen a second arrest? Love your professionalism and perspective. Well, thank you very much. Um, yeah, it's a good question. I don't know. I mean, I, I kind of think that this isn't really with any like insider knowledge necessarily. It's just knowing a bit about how this works. If there's, it, it wouldn't, suspicions are not enough evidence to arrest somebody on. You need evidence. So if, I kind of feel like if a law enforcement had enough evidence to indicate other people were involved in this, they would, there would be an arrest. And barring that, barring more evidence, if they don't feel like they have enough, they're not going to make any more arrests. So we could get into a situation where there is, unfort- and I hate to say this, but there's unfortunately a possibility that not everybody involved in, in the case will be held accountable necessarily for their role in it because uh, there's not enough evidence. Um, it's also a possibility that there is not some sort of conspiracy or that there's not a group behind it, that there's not other actors and that they're just incorrect and that they're basically confirming that and then going forward, you know, thinking that, you know, it was a sole perpetrator. So, I mean, those are the two possibilities in my mind. How, how do you feel about it, Kevin? Well, basically the, the, the answer dull as it is, is the reason there has not been a second arrest is because law enforcement must not believe they have the evidence to convict uh, a second person. Yeah. They may have suspicions about other people. They might have like an amount of evidence that makes them suspicious, but not amount of evidence that they can say this is probable cause or, you know, enough to take in front of a jury. Yes. Uh, This is from Joe Johnson. It was great meeting you guys in late October. It was great to meet you too, Joe. We met Joe at the uh, press conference, I believe. Yes, we did. Halloween. Um, He says, I feel like the evidence against Rick Allen is very weak, uh, subjective, and circumstantial. I haven't heard anyone say anything bad about him. Even his coworker just said he may have had a staring issue. Um, That doesn't make you a murderer. I want the person and persons or persons responsible for the deaths of Libby and Abby to pay as much as anyone does. How horrible would it be if an innocent man is behind bars? There are so many variables that play into the timing of his arrest. I don't want to appear too conspiratorial, so I leave that alone. You had an episode where someone asked a hypothetical question, who does that, referring to speaking with a conservation officer, placing himself at the seat uh, at the trails, dressed in clothes like BG. I feel like innocent people do that. What do you feel is likelihood that RA is really innocent of the charges? Well, thanks for the detailed question, Joe. And as I said, it was nice meeting you too. Um, 
yeah, some some good points. I would say um, regarding the timing of his arrest, I tend to think that that's a non non starter in my opinion. I, I kind of tend to think that law enforcement moved when they did because my sense is like this came up kind of suddenly and they acted upon it quickly when they felt they had enough. And there's not really much more to it than that, in my view. Obviously, if we get evidence to the contrary, we're interested in that. But that's just that's what we're kind of that's what we understand. Um, I I tend to think, and and one one thing we do with our reporting is like we're not out to condemn Alan. We're not out to do PR for Alan. Um, we're out to talk to people who knew him and tell you what they said to us. So most of the interviews we've done with people have been pretty much. To boil it down, I knew Alan barely. He seemed really normal. He was nice. A lot of people say he's funny. Nobody was getting bad vibes. Um, except for one coworker who we uh, did an interview with. And she was very much saying, listen, we didn't get along at work, but it wasn't like a creepy creep thing. Like where I thought he was, you know, evil or something. I just, it was just a personality clash. So nobody, there's never been any bombshell interviews we've done with anybody to indicate that he was known as a creep. That being said, I I don't, I guess like to me, that just means that that that, that means that people didn't find him creepy. That doesn't mean he's innocent. That does not mean he's guilty and he was hiding something. I just, we put out data that we collect and we kind of just try to avoid drawing so many conclusions. I think so many missteps have been made in terms of people's understanding of this case because they like try to fit the facts to mean something. And I don't know, we're kind of, we're kind of, maybe we're lazy. We kind of just take it more as like, here's what we found. You know, maybe this fills in some gaps. I don't know, but it doesn't necessarily, it certainly doesn't fill in a whole picture. I think, uh, Joe, some of your points about, you know, there, there's, there are innocent explanations for some of the things I tend to agree with that, and I think a defense attorney will certainly make hay of that. That doesn't mean for me that I think that there's no evidence against Allen. I think it's fair to say that Kevin and I both felt that the PCA was a little bit thinner than we thought it was going to be, or thinner than you might expect. But before we know what else they have, I think we're kind of just in a place where we're sort of playing it like it is. But I do think you make a really important point with the whole, you know, no one wants an innocent man to go to pu- get the punishment for something a horrible person did. That just compounds a tragedy. So it'll be really important for the defense to really do a good job defending Alan. Um, and hopefully we can all get more answers that kind of clarify things as we as we go through and get into the trial. But uh you know, I, I think it's fair to say that he's definitely in capable legal hands. These people, um, Andrew Baldwin and Brad Rosie both have very, very strong reputations in the legal field. I've not met anyone who's been like, oh, yeah, they're they're nothing. People are like, wow, yeah, I was on the opposite side of a civil, civil litigation with them. And it was rough because they're really good. So that uh, that makes me feel like the system is operating as it should. And they will certainly advocate for Alan's rights and as they should. But at the same time, I don't think we're necessarily looking at it from the perspective of like this, this is thin. So therefore he's innocent. It, 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 we're just kind of wishy-washy undecided people, I guess. <laughs> you're innocent until you're proven guilty. 
And so that means if you're not presented with evidence that that convinces you of an individual's guilt, then legally, if you're a juror, you must vote to find that person not guilty. Uh, There's not a heck of a lot of evidence in the PCA. I think we've said it over and over again. I think we all know the the standard line here, which is that not every bit of evidence that they have is in the PCA. And they have more evidence. And we will hear some of that evidence at the bail hearing or the bond hearing. And that will be very interesting. But I think it's, it is uh, important to realize that a person is innocent until proven guilty. Welcome to your next true crime obsession. Don't miss new BritBox original drama, The Sixth Commandment, which The Guardian calls as immaculate a piece of TV as you will ever see. You will hear evidence of extreme gaslighting. Help me, please. I am going to be waiting on you, hand and foot. Stream this plus the best selection of British true crime series anywhere, only on BritBox. Once you start investigating, you won't be able to turn away. Start streaming today with a free trial at BritBox.com. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda, you never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. CarMax is putting peace of mind back in car shopping by putting you in the driver's seat to find a ride that's right for you. Because at CarMax, we believe you shouldn't just settle for a car. You should love your car. That's why every car we sell is CarMax certified quality so you can be sure with upfront pricing that's the same for every customer. So don't settle. Find love at first drive and start shopping now at CarMax.com. CarMax, the way car buying should be. So Lisa asked, I believe you did a podcast a while back on a current missing person in Indy. Has there been any updates on the disappearance of Kirsten Brigaman? Seems that her case has been quiet for some time. Is there any way we could dig into the crime? Her case again? I just feel so bad for her family not knowing would just be horrible. Lisa, you're absolutely right. It's horrific. Um, we're try- We're kind of on the cusp of doing a few calls around that to see if we can shake anything down. So if we get something, we will report it. We don't consider ourselves like done with a case just because we've, we've done like an episode on it. Like it's something that sticks with us. And if we get an opportunity to do a bonus episode or to do a follow up episode and kind of like move the story forward, then that's something we're very interested in doing. And I'd also just throw out there if you're familiar with that case or you have something about it, like please let us know, you know, call the Indianapolis police. It's it. What her family, what her parents are going through is unimaginable. And that case really is very um, sad. And this young lady deserves, you know, her parents deserve to know what happened to her. So an anonymous listener wanted to ask us, kind of going back to the multiple actors in the Delphi case angle. Basically, if Nick McClellan stating that there were multiple, possibly multiple actors could be almost a red herring or some sort of strategic move to muddy the waters a little bit. And basically, like, he said that 
as a strategic move to get the media and the public to stop, quote, whining about unsealing the PCA. So it's a it's an interesting it's an interesting thought. And I think it is fair to often maybe think about, well, what strategically does this mean as far as uh, attorneys and, and, you know, prosecutors and law enforcement dealing with the media in this case? Um my impression of Nick McClelland is that he is not that manipulative or Machiavellian. Yeah, I would he say He seems no. to be a very straightforward Also, type of it guy. didn't work. It didn't work because the PCA did get unsealed, except for the witness names. Yeah. And I think the, that's going to be, like, uh, not, seal, uns, not sealing it right away. That was That was pretty unprecedented and bizarre, the way they handled it. I thought they made the PR situation worse because, like, the thing that I would have suggested doing is redact it heavily and release it immediately. And then if people want it less redacted, like maybe you start giving inches maybe, but um, by kind of taking a really firm stance against it immediately, it just kind of made it, I don't know. And then of course the controversy went away the second it got unsealed. So I think Kevin, you compared it in conversation with me to like, it's like vice presidential selections. Like every, it's a really big story for like five minutes, and then when they pick the person, it's like whatever. <laughs> you don't even remember who the other candidates were. Um, and so it's it's not a bad thought, but I just I don't know if the facts quite make sense because again, it got unsealed after all. I tend to think that also the fact if Nick McClellan had gone out on a limb and been the only one saying that, maybe. But Doug Carter got up and said basically the same thing. And, you know, the investigation's still ongoing. I mean, this has been a drumbeat we've heard. So I do think that they are very open to the possibility of other actors, whatever that means. I think that is sincere. But, you know, it's definitely it's definitely always good to take a kind of a skeptical mindset like that and say, what could they really be trying to do here? Kelly asks, do you believe... The Kagan Klein and or Anthony Schatz account is just a bizarre coincidence with regards to the Delphi murders, or is there probably some connection not yet made public? You always have to accept the possibility that there can be coincidences. As hard as that is to believe, I think, you know, the idea that like an online predator is in contact with one of the victims shortly before her death, and then possibly another predator happens to come upon them. That doesn't sound very realistic, but also, I mean, it can. It can happen. So I think we both, if if that's what the evidence points to, you just have to go with what the evidence says. And we don't have the evidence sitting in front of us, and it hasn't been presented to the jury yet. So I don't feel like we can say that couldn't have happened if that's what the evidence says. I also believe that if there was evidence and it was destroyed, then, you know, there can be a wider story that does not get adjudicated because you just can't press charges then. I tend to still be interested in the Anthony Schatz angle and, and the possible link between Keg and Klein in this case. Uh, I don't think that necessarily means there has to be a direct link between him and the murders, but I tend to think when you have um, something, uh, someone acting predatory towards the victims so, so soon and then making strange statements afterwards, I tend to think that that, you know, should be looked at strongly, at least. Is that fair to say, Kevin? That's fair to say. And our last question is from Alora. Any chance the probable cause affidavit for the search warrant on Richard Allen's residence will be released to the public soon? Great question. 
I don't know. Nobody seems to have it. <laughs> we can't find it. We keep trying. We keep trying. But if we get it, you know, it'll be interesting. It's odd. But then again, their decision to seal the PCI was odd. There's a lot odd in this case. There's a lot odd in this case. These were some great questions. These questions were great. All 17 of you, or rather 16 of you, thank you sincerely for your questions. Thank you for taking the time to kind of engage with us in this way and bring your questions to the forefront. But yeah, thanks so much. And we'll do another one of these, you know, at some point. And uh, as always, just feel free to reach out if you have questions and join the Facebook group. Uh, if you're interested, join the Patreon and, um, you know, we'll we'll just keep hopefully all answering these questions together as we get closer to trial for Delphi. And hopefully in in, in Kirsten Bregeman's case, there can be answers for her family. But uh, thanks again, and you guys have a great uh, rest of your day. Bye. Thanks so much for listening to The Murder Sheet. If you have a tip concerning one of the cases we cover, please email us at murdersheet at gmail.com. If you have actionable information about an unsolved crime, please report it to the appropriate authorities. If you're interested in joining our Patreon, that's available at www.patreon.com slash murdersheet. If you want to tip us a bit of money for records requests, you can do so at www.buymeacoffee.com slash murdersheet. We very much appreciate any support. Special thanks to Kevin Tyler Greenley, who composed the music for the murder sheet, and who you can find on the web at kevintg.com. If you're looking to talk with other listeners about a case we've covered, you can join the Murder Sheet discussion group on Facebook. We mostly focus our time on research and reporting, so we're not on social media much. We do try to check our email account, but we ask for patience as we often receive a lot of messages. Thanks again for listening.